This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Lerner Foundation and listeners like you. This is WMPG. I'm Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine. And this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today is the second show reflecting on the Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The commission has published its findings demonstrating that in keeping with decades of forcible removal of Native children from their families, first to boarding schools and then to white families, that this practice continues. Native children in Maine are still five times more likely to be removed from their homes under allegations of abuse and neglect than white children are. The Commission suggested a number of technical solutions to this problem, but fundamentally called on all of us to examine the realities of structural racism and cultural genocide that underlie this problem. Last week, during my interview with Donna Loring, we focused on how the TRC fits into the larger history of tribe-state relations in Maine. Today, I'll be talking with Gisen Tanamuk, one of the five TRC commissioners, about how the TRC fits into a larger vision of social transformation in Maine. Gisad Tanamuk is Wampanoag from the community of Mashpee, located on Cape Cod. He's a family member of the Otter Longhouse and married with three children and three grandchildren. He was one of the five commissioners of the Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission and continues to be an adjunct instructor and lecturer with the Native American Studies and the Peace and Reconciliation Program on the Orono campus of the University of Maine. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Gisad Tanamuk. Thank you, Han. It's great to be here. So the closing ceremony of the TRC was on June 14th. And I'd love to hear how, how you are reflecting on it with this kind of hindsight. Well, the whole experience since the beginning was a reflection. And, uh, you know, frankly, I, I, it, was, it was a great honor to be selected to be on this commission I, I don't know why they chose me, because I'm, um, cause I'm um, not necessarily professional in any in any regard, any way. Um, but I do care about life, and I do care about the people and the culture. Um, and I've been out there, and my whole life has been one of responding. So, a lot of the. Uh, deliberations that we would make and the discussions that we would make internally with the commission itself. I was able to uh, provide some experiential background and context to a lot of these, um, to a lot of the scenarios that we were working with. And and uh, honestly, it was nothing surprising to me what, what, the, uh, what the Wabanaki here in the North have been experiencing. It's, it's a very familiar story all throughout Indian country, and I define Indian country as North, Central, and South America. Because as I understand it, of the five commissioners, you're the only actual Native person from Maine, right? I mean, the other group was Carol Wishkamper, an organizational consultant, Gail Werbach with the School of Social Work, Sandy Whitehawk from Minnesota, hmm. and um, Matt Dunlap, the Secretary of State of Maine. So you, it makes sense to me that this story in some ways would be especially familiar to you. Yeah, sort of, sort of coming from the ground, uh, from community perspectives, yeah. And so it sounds like when you say it wasn't surprising to me, what were the parts of it that were not surprises? 
um, I, I think something that was really uh, was really impressive is how many people out there really want change in the relationship. I mean, we've had um, paid staff, and we've had a tremendous response to volunteers. You know, we've had at least 200 people have volunteered in many different capacities, and then the the venues that we spoke spoke to and addressed and heard from um, was both within the communities, but also um, throughout the state. And um, the, the response coming from Mainers was, was really overwhelming. It was surprising to me that, um, that, that people were really interested and really wanted to do something, as Michael Moore would say. Um, so I, I, would, I think that was probably the, really the, the, um, the most inspiring aspect of, of the work. And I get to see this in the classroom, you know, when those young people come into the classes, you know, they, you know, both courses are elective, so they're choosing to be there. And my sense of uh, being with students uh, for 14 weeks is um, they're less open to the to the old school status quo thing. They want to see something different, and they want to be part of something different, you know. So did you mm-hmm. feel like your work with the TRC over the, over the few years that you were listening to statements and participating in ceremony, uh, did you bring that to the classroom? Did you teach your students about oh, it? Oh, absolutely. They were well aware of, the, uh, of my work uh, outside, of the, uh, outside of the class. And we would talk about that, and I would actually have some staff come in and, and share with them. Um, and, um, you know, and some background, you know. And, and, and the TRC is really um, a kind of microcosm to the much larger context that we're working from in, in, in presenting, say, with Native American Studies uh, course. You know, it's um, it's a history that they didn't get to hear. You know, one of the elders in the, in Indian country once um, phrased it as the view from the boat versus the view from the shore. And we all know the view from the boat, you know, our society is based on that, but the view from the shore, you know, nobody knows that, you know. I think that I had heard people say something like that. Yeah. But until I really started researching for this series, I did not appreciate the depth to which I did not know. I have been staggered to find out how much I don't know and how much that was actually deliberate like we we learned last week from Donna that parts of the main constitution are uh, forcibly silenced forcibly not printed mm-hmm. that have to do with the state's responsibility to the tribes yeah. a that promise me away yeah. so that not by not yeah. by chance do we not know the, the view from the shore too right oh it's deliberate for sure um, and, and we can never really attest to why it was deliberate um the the storylines the, the national narrative um was changed um and you know not to offend church members but even the the narrative of the church has been changed you know to 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 suit a particular outcome take for instance the king james version of the bible right king james version is the key word this is a rewritten narrative designed for a particular purpose 
wonderful stories for sure, but to make this uh, a story of 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 uh, God's coming to the land, God's coming among the people, kind of thing. It was a design for that particular particular purpose. You know, where did hell come from? Where did evil come from? You know, in my culture, we don't even concept much less a word for evil. To us, everything is sacred. And I believe that's true for every earth-based culture in this world. The whole idea about pagan, earth-based spiritualities. And if we believe that God created everything, then God is in everything. Everything is sacred. There's no space for this, you know. So, so within that worldview... How do we explain, for instance, the phenomenon of cultural genocide that, that the TRC finally pointed to? How how do you make sense of that if you can't call that evil? Well, <clears throat> to begin with, we should probably lift the word cultural genocide. It's genocide. You know, the, the basic definition of genocide that the TRC was looking at was creating the conditions that would lead to the end of a people a way of life for the people. You take away their natural economy, which is closely interrelated, interwoven into the into the land. So the land is not a commodity, it's a source of life kind of thing. And then, of course, the forcible removal of children. Yes, it's very, very evil kind of thing. But, you know, it, it's, not, it's not like an evil incarnate, an evil of its own being. It's what we do. And I had to, I've had to come to that understanding. It took me a long time to come to that understanding that it's not Jesus, it's not the Gospels, it's not the teachings. It's what we do with those teachings. Right. So many spiritual practices of so many kinds, even I think of like AA, they're being led by human beings. <laughs> so right. they get complicated sometimes. Right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So when I hear you clarifying that it's not just cultural genocide, it's genocide. In the very first interview we did on this series with Maria Gerard, a Penobscot historian here in Maine, she really made it clear that this genocide is ongoing. It's not a genocide in the past, but that it continues. Do you see the removal of children from families to the degree that it's still going on is very much part of that, the loss of Native children? Absolutely. You know, it's embarrassing to admit this now, but before I really started studying the TRC, I did not have the awareness that what had happened in this country was a genocide. I really didn't, and Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think I was alone in that. And so do you have the hope that by calling it by that name, that people will start to get it and therefore feel kind of morally obligated to do something? Well, for sure morally obligated, but there is also a legal obligation to end this, you know. Um, Tell me what you mean. Well, the, the reason why we even pointed to genocide is that these are crimes against humanity. This has been an international law. Every country that signed into that has a legal obligation to end genocide, and wherever it kind of shows up, or whatever the conditions that lead to it, and we have to be mindful of that. It's it's against the law. It's a law against humanity kind of thing. 
and you know, as a footnote, it might be interesting that the United States didn't sign on the Genocide Convention, which was um, in nineteen forty-eight. The UN, they didn't. The U.S. are not signatories. Well, when it became into law, it was nineteen fifty-two. Oh, okay. You know, it, it was created in nineteen forty-eight. United States didn't sign it until nineteen eighty-eight. I didn't know that. And there's a reason for that, because everything that they've ever done to peoples of color has been genocidal. U.S. and Canadian, and wherever there's indi indigenous peoples, nation states, um, their practice is genocide. You know the whole design. You know some of the softer versions of genocide um, is assimilation, integration. You know when we when we talk about or well, one of the basis of removing Indian children, sending them off to boarding schools. As a, as a policy, removing them from their families, thinking that they're actually doing something beneficial to the human being, but they're also destroying a people, destroying a culture in the process, doing that with that design, that there's something in the minds of agencies, that there's something inherently wrong with our culture. You know, um, So the, the, the objective particularly in the, um, um, when the Bureau of Indian Affairs was established, uh, the design was to remove the culture of the people, remove their land base, remove their ability to maintain their viability as a people, as a culture. You know, and those are still the designs of the United States Indian policy. And as a footnote to that, you know that's that's been a, a kind of a global strata. You know, we 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 are historically in South Africa. The system of apartheid was based on a U.S. Indian policy. It what, really, it literally took that as a model. Right. I didn't um, know that either. Uh, Hitler took it as a model, and that's where he came up with the idea of concentration camps and and destroying Jews. It was based on. Uh, federal Indian policy, how the federal government of the United States treated Indian people. And he and he mentioned that in his book, Mein Kampf, that that's where he got the idea. This is the model. This is the framework. This is how we deal with people that we're threatened by. That's never mentioned in teaching about apartheid or the Holocaust. Yeah. Or at least not in my limited experience. And, and you're not alone. I would say maybe 95% of North Americans know very little about um, about Indian people for sure, but even the relationship. You know, the, the, there's over 800 treaties at the United States alone. Canada has 200 treaties with Indian country. Treaties are, are an instrument of international law between one sovereign and another sovereign. The United States would never agree to um, their policy directed to Indian people if it was applied to them. Right. They wouldn't stand for that. Well, actually, Nobody what I was would. thinking of is, you know, I think about uh, the kind of moral outrage and the call for sanctions, say, against Rwanda, um, and yet what would it be like for Americans if other countries had an outrage and called for sanctions against the United States because yeah. of our Indian policy? Right. I mean, I think that would be such an, a radical new idea well, from from my perspective, um, and I'm taking full responsibility. It's my perspective, you know. So, don't blame my 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 community for this, you know. 
But, you know, the, the way that Israel treats the Palestine, that's U.S. Indian policy. Um, the war against Iraq, this is, this is federal Indian policy exported to the world. They treat third world countries the same way that they treat Indian peoples. Henry Kissinger in the Nixon administration right, uh, publicly stated that the uh, oil-rich regions of the Middle East is U.S. interest. You know, so it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to recognize that this belongs to OPEC, this belongs to, to the Arab nations. If we have a, an interest in the resource, then we have a right to go in and take it. Right, and that that fundamental sense of entitlement is what you're talking about right. in relation to absolutely. All. So, so bringing it back home for a minute, how is that playing out right now? What what U.S. interest is there in is it in the land? Is it in the resources? In what way is the United States, or maybe it's the main state government, still taking from Indian peoples here in the state? Uh, seeing it as their interest? Well, the, the, the first response to this is control. The United States will not, and, and this includes the state of Maine, you know, <clears throat> right now the, the Penobscot Nation um, is in a mindless lawsuit, not mindless on the part of the Penobscot Nation, but the state of Maine has declared that the, the Penobscot Nation has no jurisdiction in the Penobscot River, nor in the river watershed. This is their territory. The Penobscot River is their identity. Everybody knows that. And that was true right up until, what, 2010, when the Attorney General uh, announced to the Penobscot Nation that you have no jurisdiction on this river. This is not part of your culture. You are you have land-based based right. You don't have river-based rights, you know. But prior to 2010, the state of Maine recognizing that the Penobscots have um, have a vested interest in the health of the Penobscot River, kind of thing, something like that. You know, it's just mindless control. You know, um, and is that because the state of Maine, you know, wants to claim the fish that are there, or they don't want to have to keep up with the water quality standards set by the EPA? What what is the fundamental state interest that the, underlies the Penobscot that? Nation? Um, has its own water quality, and, and it manages the uh, the river where they where they can exercise some uh, some modicum control over it, at least the, the space that's been recognized as as their territory. So their their standards are higher than the states. They're even higher to than the federal standards. And if you have an uncontrolled sovereign dictating the, the life of the river because the people are still eating fish from that. The, the, the moose that they depend on eats from the river. They're water animals, you know, and they're affected by, by the, the high carcinogenic cancer-producing um, elements that are still being <clears throat> poured into the river. So as the state is trying to protect the right to pollute the river upstream from the Penobscot Nation, and so... I mean, is that fundamentally what's at issue here? Well, you tell me when the gov- when the present governor relaxes the EPA standards of the state. 
So sure the, seems so, like it. So the corporates can do what they do. You know, it's about generating resources. You know, the main economy isn't that great. You know, so there's, there's this need to make the economy viable. It's hard to see how that's in anyone's interest, really, other than, you know, corporate bottom line. But really, for the people of Maine, we, we, it seems to me that we're all together in this one. Well, we should have been all together right from the beginning. You know, I, I, think, of, I think of that historic moment when the separatist English came off of their boat. This is the Mayflower. You know, these are the pilgrims kind of thing. And um, maybe for the first 20 years, we came to closest of having peace with the English. You know, after that 20-year period, second generation, you know, were more, more hostile and eventually led to King Philip's War. And we've been at war with the English, now Americans, our neighbors. But you know the, the 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 point here is is that um, because people lack a fundamental understanding about the view from the shore, they have absolutely no idea who Indian people are, no idea about what Indian people are about. Probably never even met Indian people, never even visited Indian res- reservations. You know. We're sort of as as some of the Wabanaki here going, we're invisible, you know, out of sight, out of mind kind of thing, you know. We never think about Indian country, you know. Um, But still, Indian people are on the front lines all the time, trying to defend the land, trying to, in this case, trying to defend the water quality of the river, you know. And if, if people really begin to have a have a grasp about who Indian people are and what they're about and why they are in perpetual conflict with federal Indian policies, by example, or state policies. You know, they would side with with Indian people because it's the integrity of the land, and they're not just thinking about us. They're not thinking about our generation. They're thinking about generations way into the future. They're thinking about their great 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 grandchildren down the road what kind of a life they're going to have. We have to make those decisions based on what kind of life they're going to have. It's not about us. It's about the children. And to take it one step further, it's not just our children. It's everybody's children. And, when, when, and in, the, in the construct of being a clan member of the otter, it's the otter's children too. It's all those little plant life that's coming up. Those are our children as well. So you have such an expansive, future-oriented view, which, you know, we I, we think of intent. We think in terms of four-year cycles, in terms of electoral politics, and it it such a shorter, self-serving view that I think that feeds in our culture. Yeah, it's very narrow, and 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 that, that perspective is basically on abstracts, the economy. We only think of those terms, economy. You know, we're not thinking about the quality of life. Maybe not even thinking about the quantity of life. You know, um, and I, I kind of raise this in the classroom every once in a while. Exactly, what is the fundamental nature of our system, of our society? 
1% of the population owns 50% of the resources. Right? I thought it was even more than that. What is that? Probably more than that. But sure, 50%. So you've got 99% you know, vying with the rest of the percentage. Peoples of color are locked out of it completely. And we're talking about access. You know? Well, you know, the, the, the system would make, um, for the lack of a better term, white young people, they would make them work for it, but the system is designed for them, you know. But the system is not designed for people of color. In Indian country, it's completely off, off the social ladder altogether kind of thing. So what would it look like if, for instance, as Vine Deloria Jr. once said, um, uh, if the United States honored, enforced, as they are constitutionally mandated to, every treaty that they've ever made with Indian country, what would that look like? Both in the legal, moral, and economic sense. The United States is, is a, one of the most powerful countries in the world because they have access to the resources. And none of those resources belong to them. It's basic, basically stolen property. You know, they violate the treaties. The United States hasn't kept one treaty out of the 800 treaties. What was it? What would it look like? You know, um, kind of a side note to that: the UN did an investigation, 1992 to 1999, investigated indigenous treaties, and found that. Um, that Indian peoples, Indian country, they haven't lost their status as nations. And those treaties are international instruments that are guided by the international law of treaties. And the United States violates both its constitutional mandate and the international law on treaties. You know? And essentially we're dealing with outlaws in that respect. And there's, there's no light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to this. And I think part of it, and, and we see this played out here in Maine, um, particularly with, with the, with the uh, TRC, when we're talking about reconciliation, um, one of the responses that were coming from the administration and from some of the legislatures, you know, state legislature, was about compensation. You know, um, they, they're looking at reconciliation as, as some kind of retribution. You know, what is this going to mean if we recognized it kind of thing? And, and that's not what the people are talking about. People are talking about a change in the relationship. I was speaking today to Gisantanamuk, one of the five commissioners of the Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We're going to hear more about what a change in the relationship would look like next week. I was enjoying this conversation so much we decided to extend it into two parts. So I hope you'll tune in again next week. If you like this show and want to stay connected to these issues, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. And you can find us on the web at safespaceradio.com and listen to all of our past shows, including our earlier shows about Wabanaki history, the TRC itself, and the work of breaking silence in order to heal. 
While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. My thanks to Gabe Graven for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. Coming up next, Speak Freely. <laughs>